Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and narrated mostly by me, your host, Chris Mayer. I've got a few stories for you this week. The first one is by Richard Middleton, a contemporary of Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Mackin, whom I'm still trying to slot into one of these episodes. Middleton's best-known work is The Ghost Ship, but he's written a fair amount of short stories and is also known for, once again, his ghost stories. It's almost like they wrote nothing else back then, either Regency romance or ghost story. This one isn't exactly a ghost story, but it is hauntingly beautiful. Here is The Bird in the Garden. The Bird in the Garden by Richard Middleton The room in which the Birchall family lived in Love Street was underground and depended for light and air on a grating let into the pavement above. Uncle John, who was a queer one, had filled the area with green plants and creepers and boxes and tins hanging from the grating, so that the room itself obtained very little light indeed. But there was always a nice bright green place for the people sitting in it to look at. Toby, who had peeped into the areas of other little boys, knew that his was of quite exceptional beauty, and it was with a certain awe that he helped Uncle John to tend the plants in the morning, watering them and taking the pieces of paper and straws that had fallen through the grating from their hair. It is a great mistake to have straws in one's hair, Uncle John would say gravely, and Toby knew that it was true. It was in the morning after they had just been watered that the plants looked and smelt best, and when the sun shone through the grating and the diamonds were shining and falling through the forest, Toby would tell the baby about the great bird who would one day come flying through the trees, a bird of all colors, ugly and beautiful, with a harsh, sweet voice. And that will be the end of everything, said Toby, though of course he was only repeating a story his Uncle John had told him. There were other people in the big, dark room besides Toby and Uncle John and the baby. Dark people who flitted to and fro about secret matters. People called Father and Mother and Mr. Hearn, who were apt to kick if they found you in their way, and who never laughed except at nights, and then they laughed too loudly. They will frighten the bird, thought Toby. But they were kind to Uncle John because he had a pension. Toby slept in a corner on the ground beside the baby, and when Father and Mr. Hearn fought at nights, he would wake up and watch and shiver. But when this happened, it seemed to him that the baby was laughing at him, and he would pinch her to make her stop. One night, when the men were fighting very fiercely and Mother had fallen asleep on the table, Uncle John rose from his bed and began singing in a great voice. It was a song Toby knew very well about Trafalgar's Bay, but it frightened the two men a great deal because they thought Uncle John would be too mad to fetch the pension anymore. Next day he was quite well, however, and he and Toby found a large green caterpillar in the garden among the plants. This is a fact of great importance, said Uncle John, stroking it with a little stick. 
It is a sign. Toby used to lie awake at nights after that and listen for the bird, but he only heard the clatter of feet on the pavement and the screaming of engines far away. Later there came a new young woman to live in the cellar. Not a dark person, but a person you could see and speak to. She patted Toby on the head, but when she saw the baby, she caught it to her breast and cried over it, calling it pretty names. At first, Father and Mr. Hearn were both very kind to her, and Mother used to sit all day in the corner with burning eyes. But after a time, the three used to laugh together at nights as before, and the woman would sit with her wet face and wait for the coming of the bird, with Toby and the baby and Uncle John, who was a queer one. All we have to do, Uncle John would say, is to keep the garden clean and tidy and to water the plants every morning so that they may be very green. And Toby would go and whisper this to the baby, and she would stare at the ceiling with large, stupid eyes. There came a time when Toby was very sick, and he lay all day in his corner wondering about wonder. Sometimes the room in which he lay became so small that he was choked for lack of air, Sometimes it was so large that he screamed out because he felt lonely. He could not see the dark people then at all, but only Uncle John and the woman, who told him in whispers that her name was Mummy. She called him Sonny, which is a very pretty name, and when Toby heard it he felt a tickling in his sides which he knew to be gladness. Mummy's face was wet and warm and soft, and she was very fond of kissing. Every morning Uncle John would lift Toby up and show him the garden, and Toby would slip out of his arms and walk among the trees and plants, and the place would grow bigger and bigger until it was all the world, and Toby would lose himself amongst the tangle of trees and flowers and creepers. He would see butterflies there and tame animals, and the sky was full of birds of all colors, ugly and beautiful but he knew that none of these was the bird because their voices were only sweet. Sometimes he showed these wonders to a little boy called Toby, who held his hand and called him Uncle John. Sometimes he showed them to his mummy, and he himself was Toby. But always when he came back, he found himself lying in Uncle John's arms, and weary from his walk, would fall into a pleasant, dreamless sleep. It seemed to Toby at this time that a veil hung about him, which, dim and unreal in itself, served to make all things dim and unreal. He did not know whether he was asleep or awake. So strange was life, so vivid were his dreams. Mummy, Uncle John, the baby, Toby himself, came with a flicker of the veil and disappeared vaguely without cause. It would happen that Toby would be speaking to Uncle John, and suddenly he would find himself looking into the large eyes of the baby, turned stupidly towards the ceiling. And again the baby would be Toby himself, a hot, dry little body without legs or arms that swayed suspended as if by magic a foot above the bed. Then there was the vision of two small feet that moved a long way off, and Toby would watch them curiously as kittens do their tails without knowing the cause of their motion. It was all very wonderful and very strange, and day by day the veil grew thicker. There was no need to wake when the sleep time was so pleasant. There were no dark people to kick you in that dreamy place. And yet Toby woke, woke to a life and in a place which he had never known before. He found himself on a heap of rags in a large cellar, which depended for its light on a grating let into the pavement of the street above. On the stone floor of the area and swinging from the grating were a few sickly, grimy plants and pots. 
There must have been a fine sunset up above, for a faint red glow came through the bars and touched the leaves of the plants. There was a lighted candle standing in a bottle on the table, and the cellar seemed full of people. At the table itself, two men and a woman were drinking, though they were already drunk, and beyond in a corner, Toby could see the head and shoulders of a tall old man. Beside him, there crouched a woman with a faded, pretty face. And between Toby and the rest of the room, there stood a box in which lay a baby with large, wakeful eyes. Toby's body tingled with excitement, for this was a new thing. He had never seen it before. He had never seen anything before. The voice of the woman at the table rose and fell steadily without a pause. She was abusing the other woman, and the two drunken men were laughing at her and shouting her on. Toby thought the other woman lacked spirit because she stayed crouching on the floor and said nothing. At last the woman stopped her abuse, and one of the men turned and shouted an order to the woman on the floor. She stood up and came towards him, hesitating. This annoyed the man, and he swore at her brutally. When she came near enough, he knocked her down with his fist, and all the three burst out laughing. Toby was so excited that he knelt up in his corner and clapped his hands, but the others did not notice because the old man was up and swaying wildly over the woman. He seemed to be threatening the man who had struck her, and that one was evidently afraid of him, for he rose unsteadily and lifted the chair on which he had been sitting above his head to use as a weapon. The old man raised his fist, and the chair fell heavily onto his wrinkled forehead, and he dropped to the ground. The woman at the table cried out, The pension! in her shrill voice, and then they were all quiet, looking. Then it seemed to Toby that through the forest there came flying, with a harsh, sweet voice and a tumult of wings, a bird of all colors, ugly and beautiful. And he knew, though later there might be people to tell him otherwise, that that was the end of everything. Out of the garden, into the bed and breakfast. This next story takes place in the New Jersey countryside, probably not far from where I live, actually. And yes, New Jersey has a countryside. We even have wineries. Northern New Jersey is absolutely beautiful and a fantastic spot for a picnic. Or a cozy little bed and breakfast with some nice people. The Nice People by Henry Coiler Bunner They certainly are nice people, I assented to my wife's observation, using the colloquial phrase with a consciousness that it was anything but nice English. And I'll bet that their three children are better brought up than most of two children corrected my wife. Three, he told me. My dear, she said there were two. He said three. You've simply forgotten. I'm sure she told me they had only two, a boy and a girl. Well, I didn't enter into particulars. No, dear, and you couldn't have understood him. Two children. All right, I said. But I did not think it was all right. 
As a nearsighted man learns by enforced observation to recognize persons at a distance when the face is not visible to the normal eye, so the man with a bad memory learns almost unconsciously to listen carefully and report accurately. My memory is bad, but I had not had time to forget that Mr. Brewster Breed had told me that afternoon that he had three children, at present left in the care of his mother-in-law, while he and Mrs. Breed took their summer vacation. Two children, repeated my wife, and they are staying with his aunt Jenny. He told me with his mother-in-law, I put in. My wife looked at me with a serious expression. Men may not remember much of what they are told about children, but any man knows the difference between an aunt and a mother-in-law. But don't you think they're nice people? asked my wife. Oh, certainly, I replied, only they seem to be a little mixed up about their children. That isn't a nice thing to say, returned my wife. I could not deny it. And yet, the next morning, when the breeds came down and seated themselves opposite us at table, beaming and smiling in their natural, pleasant, well-bred fashion, I knew, to a social certainty, that they were nice people. He was a fine-looking fellow in his neat tennis flannels, slim, graceful, twenty-eight or thirty years old, with a Frenchy pointed beard. She was nice in all her pretty clothes, and she herself was pretty, with that type of prettiness that outwears most other types, the prettiness that lies in a rounded figure, a dusky skin, plump, rosy cheeks, white teeth, and black eyes. She might have been twenty-five. You guessed that she was prettier than she was at twenty, and that she would be prettier still at forty. And nice people were all we wanted to make us happy in Mr. Jacobus's summer boarding house on top of Orange Mountain. For a week, we had come down to breakfast each morning, wondering why we wasted the precious days of idleness with the company gathered round the Jacobus board. What joy of human companionship was to be had out of Mrs. Tabb and Miss Hoogenkamp, the two middle-aged gossips from Scranton, Pennsylvania, out of Mr. and Mrs. Biggle, an indurated head bookkeeper, and his prim and censorious wife, out of old Major Halkett, a retired businessman, who, having once sold a few shares on commission, wrote for circulars of every stock company that was started and tried to induce everyone to invest who would listen to him. We looked around at those dull faces, the truthful indices of mean and barren minds, and decided that we would leave that morning. Then we ate Mrs. Jacobus's biscuit, light as Aurora's cloudlets, drank her honest coffee, inhaled the perfume of the late azaleas with which she decked her table, and decided to postpone our departure one more day. And then we wandered out to take our morning glance at what we called our view, and it seemed to us as if Tab and Hoogenkamp and Halkett and the Biggleses could not drive us away in a year. I was not surprised when, after breakfast, my wife invited the Breeds to walk with us to our view. The Hoogenkamp, Biggle, Tab, Halkett contingent never stirred off Jacobus's veranda, but we both felt that the Breeds would not profane that sacred scene. We strolled slowly across the fields, passed through the little belt of woods, and as I heard Mrs. Breed's little cry of startled rapture, I motioned to Breed to look up. By Jove, he cried, heavenly. We looked off from the brow of the mountain over fifteen miles of billowing green to where, far across a far stretch of pale blue, lay a dim purple line that we knew was Staten Island. Towns and villages lay before us and under us. There were ridges and hills, uplands and lowlands woods and plains, 
all massed and mingled in that great silent sea of sunlit green. For silent it was to us, standing in the silence of a high place, silent with a Sunday stillness that made us listen, without taking thought, for the sound of bells coming up from the spires that rose above the treetops, the treetops that lay as far beneath us as the light clouds were above us that dropped great shadows upon our heads and faint specks of shade upon the broad sweep of land at the mountain's foot. And so that is your view, asked Mrs. Breed after a moment. You are very generous to make it ours too. Then we lay down on the grass and Breed began to talk in a gentle voice, as if he felt the influence of the place. He had paddled a canoe in his earlier days, he said, and he knew every river and creek in that vast stretch of landscape. He found his landmarks and pointed out to us where the Passaic and the Hackensack flowed, invisible to us, hidden behind great ridges that in our sight were but combings of the green waves upon which we looked down. And yet, on the further side of those broad ridges and rises were scores of villages, a little world of country life lying unseen under our eyes. A good deal like looking at humanity, he said. There is such a thing as getting so far above our fellow men that we see only one side of them. Ah, how much better was this sort of talk than the chatter and gossip of the Tab and the Hugenkamp, than the Major's dissertations upon his everlasting circulars. My wife and I exchanged glances. Now, when I went up the Matterhorn, Mr. Breed began. Why, dear, interrupted his wife, I didn't know you ever went up the Matterhorn. It, uh, it was five years ago, said Mr. Breed hurriedly. I, I didn't tell you uh, when I was on the other side, you know. It was rather dangerous. Well, as I was saying, it looked, oh, it didn't look at all like this. A cloud floated overhead throwing its great shadow over the field where we lay. The shadow passed over the mountain's brow and reappeared far below, a rapidly decreasing blot flying eastward over the golden green. My wife and I exchanged glances once more. Somehow the shadow lingered over us all. As we went home, the breeds went side by side along the narrow path, and my wife and I walked together. Should you think, she asked me, that a man would climb the Matterhorn the very first year he was married? I don't know, my dear, I answered evasively. This isn't the first year I have been married, not by a good many, and I wouldn't climb it for a farm. You know what I mean, she said. I did. When we reached the boarding house, Mr. Jacobus took me aside. You know, he began his discourse, my wife, she used to live in New York. I didn't know, but I said yes. She says the numbers on the streets runs crisscross like thirty fours on one side of the street and thirty five on the other. How's that? That is the invariable rule, I believe. Then I say, these here new folk that you and your wife seem so mighty taken up with, do you know anything about them? I know nothing about the character of your boarders, Mr. Jacobus, I replied, conscious of some irritability. If I choose to associate with any of them... Just so, just so, broke in Jacobus. I ain't nothing to say against your sociability. But do ye know them? Why, certainly not, I replied. Well, that was all I was asking ye. You see, when he come here to take the rooms, you wasn't here then, he told my wife that he lived at number 34 in his street, 
And yesterday, she told her that they lived at number 35. He said he lived in an apartment house. Now, there can't be no apartment house on two sides of the same street, can they? What street was it? I inquired wearily. 121st Street. Maybe, I replied, still more wearily. That's Harlem. Nobody knows what people will do in Harlem. I went up to my wife's room. Don't you think it's queer? She asked me. I think I'll have a talk with that young man tonight, I said, and see if he can give some account of himself. But my dear, my wife said gravely, she doesn't know whether they've had the measles or not. Why, great Scott, I exclaimed. They must have had them when they were children. Please don't be stupid, said my wife. I meant their children. After dinner that night, or rather after supper, for we had dinner in the middle of the day at Jacobus's, I walked down the long veranda to ask Breed, who was placidly smoking at the other end, to accompany me on a twilight stroll. Halfway down, I met Major Halkett. That friend of yours, he said, indicating the unconscious figure at the further end of the house, seems to be a queer sort of a dick. He told me that he was out of business and just looking round for a chance to invest his capital. And I've been telling him what an everlasting big show he had to take stock in the Capital Line Trust Company. Starts next month, four million capital. I told you all about it. Oh, well, he says, let's wait and think about it. Wait, says I. The Capital Line Trust Company won't wait for you, my boy. This is letting you in on the ground floor, says I. And it's now or never. Oh, let it wait, says he. I don't know what's into the man. I don't know how well he knows his own business, Major, I said, as I started again for Breed's end of the veranda. But I was troubled nonetheless. The Major could not have influenced the sale of one share of stock in the Capital Line Company, but that stock was a great investment, a rare chance for a purchaser with a few thousand dollars. Perhaps it was no more remarkable that Breed should not invest than that I should not. And yet, it seemed to add one circumstance more to the other suspicious circumstances. When I went upstairs that evening, I found my wife putting her hair to bed. I don't know how I can better describe an operation familiar to every married man. I waited until the last tress was coiled up, and then I spoke. I've talked with Breed, I said, and I didn't have to catechize him. He seemed to feel that some sort of explanation was looked for, and he was very outspoken. You were right about the children. That is, I must have misunderstood him. There are only two. But the Matterhorn episode was simple enough. He didn't realize how dangerous it was until he had got so far into it that he couldn't back out. And he didn't tell her because he'd left her here, you see, and under the circumstances... Left her here, cried my wife. I've been sitting with her the whole afternoon, sewing, and she told me that he left her at Geneva and came back and took her to Basel and the baby was born there. Now I'm sure, dear, because I asked her. Perhaps I was mistaken when I thought he said she was on this side of the water, I suggested with bitter, biting irony. You poor dear, did I abuse you, said my wife. But do you know, Mrs. Tabbs said that she didn't know how many lumps of sugar he took in his coffee. Now that seems queer, doesn't it? It did. It was a small thing but it looked queer, very queer. The next morning it was clear that war was declared against the breeds. 
They came down to breakfast somewhat late, and as soon as they arrived, the Biggleses swooped up the last fragments that remained on their plates and made a stately march out of the dining room. Then Miss Hugenkamp arose and departed, leaving a whole fishbowl on her plate. Even as Atalanta might have dropped an apple behind her to tempt her pursuer to check his speed, so Miss Hugenkamp left that fishbowl behind her, and between her maiden self and contamination. We had finished our breakfast, my wife and I, before the breeds appeared. We talked it over and agreed that we were glad that we had not been obliged to take sides upon such insufficient testimony. After breakfast, it was the custom of the male half of the Jacobus household to go around the corner of the building and smoke their pipes and cigars where they would not annoy the ladies. We sat under a trellis covered with a grapevine that had borne no grapes in the memory of man. This vine, however, bore leaves, and these on that pleasant summer morning shielded from us two persons who were in earnest conversation in the straggling, half-dead flower garden at the side of the house. I don't want, we heard Mr. Jacobus say, to enter in no man's privacy, but I do want to know who it may be like that I have in my house. Now what I ask of you, and I don't want you to take it as in no ways personal, is have you your marriage license with you? No, we heard the voice of Mr. Breed reply. Have you yours? I think it was a chance shot, but it told all the same. The major, he was a widower, and Mr. Biggle and I looked at each other. And Mr. Jacobus, on the other side of the grape trellis, looked at, I don't know what, and was as silent as we were. Where is your marriage license, married listener? Do you know? Four men, not including Mr. Breed, stood or sat on one side or the other of that grape trellis, and not one of them knew where his marriage license was. Each of us had had one. The Major had had three. But where were they? Where is yours? Tucked in your best man's pocket, deposited in his desk, or washed to a pulp in his white waistcoat, if white waistcoats be the fashion of the hour, washed out of existence. Can you tell where it is? Can you? Unless you are one of those people who frame that interesting document and hang it upon their drawing-room walls. Mr. Breed's voice arose after an awful stillness of what seemed like five minutes and was probably thirty seconds. Mr. Jacobus, will you make out your bill at once and let me pay it? I shall leave by the six o'clock train. And will you also send the wagon for my trunks? I ain't said I wanted to have you leave, began Mr. Jacobus, but Breed cut him short. Bring me your bill. But, remonstrated Jacobus, if ye ain't, bring me your bill, said Mr. Breed. My wife and I went out for our morning's walk, but it seemed to us, when we looked at our view, as if we could only see those invisible villages of which Breed had told us, that other side of the ridges and rises of which we catch no glimpse from lofty hills or from the heights of human self-esteem. We meant to stay out until the Breeds had taken their departure, but we returned just in time to see Pete, the general handyman of the house, loading the Breed trunks on the Jacobus wagon. And as we stepped upon the veranda, down came Mrs. Breed, leaning on Mr. Breed's arm, as though she were ill. And it was clear that she had been crying. There were heavy rings about her pretty black eyes. My wife took a step toward her. Look at that dress, dear, she whispered. She never thought anything like this was going to happen when she put that on. It was a pretty, delicate, dainty dress, a graceful, narrow-striped affair. 
Her hat was trimmed with a narrow striped silk of the same colors, maroon and white, and in her hand she held a parasol that matched her dress. She's had a new dress on twice a day, said my wife, but that's the prettiest yet. Oh, somehow, I'm awfully sorry they're going. But going they were. They moved toward the steps. Mrs. Breed looked toward my wife, and my wife moved toward Mrs. Breed. But the ostracized woman, as though she felt the deep humiliation of her position, turned sharply away and opened her parasol to shield her eyes from the sun. A shower of rice, a half-pound shower of rice, fell down over her pretty hat and her pretty dress and fell in a spattering circle on the floor, outlining her skirts. And there it lay in a broad, uneven band, bright in the morning sun. Mrs. Breed was in my wife's arms, sobbing as if her young heart would break. Oh, you poor, dear, silly children, my wife cried as Mrs. Breed sobbed on her shoulder. Why didn't you tell us? We, we didn't want to be t taken for a b bridal couple, sobbed Mrs. Breed. And we did, didn't dream what awful lies we'd have to tell and all the aw awful mixed-upness of it. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Pete, commanded Mr. Jacobus, put back them trunks. These folks stays here as long as they wants to. Mr. Breed, he held out a large, hard hand. I order known better, he said. And my last doubt of Mr. Breed vanished as he shook that grimy hand in manly fashion. The two women were walking off toward our view, each with an arm about the other's waist, touched by a sudden sisterhood of sympathy. Gentlemen, said Mr. Breed, addressing Jacobus Biggle the Major and me, there is a hostelry down the street where they sell honest New Jersey beer. I recognize the obligations of the situation. We five men filed down the street. The two women went toward the pleasant slope where the sunlight gilded the forehead of the great hill. On Mr. Jacobus's veranda lay a spattered circle of shining grains of rice. Two of Mr. Jacobus's pigeons flew down and picked up the shining grains, making grateful noises far down in their throats. I will admit I don't quite understand that ending. Maybe it's something in the culture that has been lost through time, but why wouldn't you want to be recognized as a newlywed? I mean, people give you all sorts of free stuff and break out the good liquor for you in celebration. And now we continue with Jim's adventure in Long Island. So last week we met Marks, the manservant. I hope you noted the initial description of him. This is where the anti-Semitism comes in. See... Marx is Jewish. Again, I hope you noted the initial description of him. The very first thing said about him, which I took out, was that Jim recognized him to be a Jew. And it stayed unflattering from there. While Marx is referred to by name here and there, before my editing he was mostly referred to as the Jew or the Hebrew. You'll hear it in the dialogue because, like I said earlier, I think it does matter a bit to have that sentiment in the characterizations. You'll see. 
This is one of the things I'd like to do a special deep dive episode on, where this depiction comes from. You may have heard floating around Jon Stewart's recent comments about J.K. Rowling's depiction of goblins, which she amended to state flat out that he didn't think she was anti-Semitic herself, nor was he accusing her to be. It's the same here. I don't think Blackwood is anti-Semitic himself, but I do think this is an unfortunate cultural shorthand that stems from the same place as Rowling's goblins. It might even have been to include some commentary or character for Jim Shorthouse, since the story is from his point of view. But also remember, it's being told by someone who heard it from Jim. The first few lines of the story establish the narrator as an actual character telling the story. I don't really know why Blackwood chose to go all in on the anti-Semitic caricature, but hopefully I'll learn a bit more about this side of him as I read and research a bit more. I wish I had the time to really devote to this stuff, but unfortunately I have to leave that to you. By all means, feel free to discuss in the comments on the Patreon. Thankfully, the fact that Marx is Jewish really has no bearing on the story at all, and I can remove most of the ugly sentiment, and we can enjoy the rest of the story for what it is. And it is a hell of a story. If you found yourself wondering last week just what weirdness will ensue, well, it's dinner time in the Garvey house, and let's just say that Jim's a bit unprepared for what's about to transpire. The Strange Adventures of a Private Secretary in New York By Algernon Blackwood Part 2 The tall form disappeared and the door was shut. The conversation of the past few minutes had come somewhat as a revelation to the secretary. Garvey seemed in full possession of normal instincts. There was no doubt as to the sincerity of his manner and intentions. The suspicions of the first hour began to vanish like mist before the sun. Sidebotham's portentous warnings and the mystery with which he surrounded the whole episode had been allowed to unduly influence his mind. The loneliness of the situation and the bleak nature of the surroundings had helped to complete the illusion. He began to be ashamed of his suspicions, and a change commenced gradually to be wrought in his thoughts. Anyhow, a dinner and a bed were preferable to six miles in the dark, no dinner, and a cold train into the bargain. Garvey returned presently. We'll do the best we can for you, he said, dropping into the deep armchair on the other side of the fire. Marx is a good servant if you watch him all the time. You must always stand over a Jew, though, if you want things done properly. They're tricky and uncertain unless they're working for their own interest. But Marx might be worse, I'll admit. He's been with me for nearly twenty years, cook, valet, housemaid, and butler all in one. In the old days, you know, he was a clerk in our office in Chicago. Garvey rattled on, and Shorthouse listened with occasional remarks thrown in. The former seemed pleased to have somebody to talk to, and the sound of his own voice was evidently sweet music in his ears. After a few minutes, he crossed over to the sideboard and again took up the decanter of whiskey, holding it to the light. You will join me this time, he said pleasantly, pouring out two glasses. It will give us an appetite for dinner. And this time Shorthouse did not refuse. The liquor was mellow and soft, and the men took two glasses apiece. Excellent, remarked the secretary. Glad you appreciate it, 
said the host, smacking his lips. It's very old whiskey, and I rarely touch it when I'm alone. But this, he added, is a special occasion, isn't it? Shorthouse was in the act of putting his glass down when something drew his eyes suddenly to the other's face. A strange note in the man's voice caught his attention and communicated alarm to his nerves. A new light shone in Garvey's eyes, and there flitted momentarily across his strong features the shadow of something that set the secretary's nerves tingling. A mist spread before his eyes, and the unaccountable belief rose strong in him that he was staring into the visage of an untamed animal. Close to his heart, there was something that was wild, fierce, savage. An involuntary shiver ran over him and seemed to dispel the strange fancy as suddenly as it had come. He met the other's eye with a smile, the counterpart of which in his heart was vivid horror. It is a special occasion, he said, as naturally as possible, and, allow me to add, very special whiskey. Garvey appeared delighted. He was in the middle of a devious tale describing how the whiskey came originally into his possession when the door opened behind them and a grating voice announced that dinner was ready. They followed the cassocked form of Marks across the dirty hall, lit only by the shaft of light that followed them from the library door, and entered a small room where a single lamp stood upon a table laid for dinner. The walls were destitute of pictures, and the windows had Venetian blinds without curtains. There was no fire in the grate, and when the men sat down facing each other, Shorthouse noticed that while his own cover was laid with its due proportion of glasses and cutlery, his companion had nothing before him but a soup plate without fork, knife, or spoon beside it. I don't know what there is to offer you, he said, but I'm sure Marx has done the best he can at such short notice. I only eat one course for dinner, but pray take your time and enjoy your food. Marx presently set a plate of soup before the guest, yet so loathsome was the immediate presence of this old servitor that the spoonfuls disappeared somewhat slowly. Garvey sat and watched him. Shorthouse said the soup was delicious and bravely swallowed another mouthful. In reality, his thoughts were centered upon his companion, whose manners were giving evidence of a gradual and curious change. There was a decided difference in his demeanor, a difference that the secretary felt at first rather than saw. Garvey's quiet self-possession was giving place to a degree of suppressed excitement that seemed so far inexplicable. His movements became quick and nervous, his eyes shifting and strangely brilliant and his voice, when he spoke, betrayed an occasional deep tremor. Something unwanted was stirring within him, and evidently demanding every moment more vigorous manifestation as the meal proceeded. Intuitively, Shorthouse was afraid of this growing excitement, and while negotiating some uncommonly tough pork chops, he tried to lead the conversation onto the subject of chemistry, of which in his Oxford days he had been an enthusiastic student. His companion, however, would none of it. It seemed to have lost interest for him, and he would barely condescend to respond. When Marx presently returned with a plate of steaming eggs and bacon, the subject dropped of its own accord. An inadequate dinner dish, Garvey said, as soon as the man was gone, but better than nothing, I hope. Shorthouse remarked that he was exceedingly fond of bacon and eggs, and looking up with the last word, saw that Garvey's face was twitching convulsively, and that he was almost wriggling in his chair. He quieted down, however, under the secretary's gaze, and observed, though evidently with an effort, Very good of you to say so. Wish I could join you, only I never eat such stuff. I only take one course for dinner. 
Shorthouse began to feel some curiosity as to what the nature of this one course might be, but he made no further remark and contented himself with noting mentally that his companion's excitement seemed to be rapidly growing beyond his control. There was something uncanny about it, and he began to wish he had chosen the alternative of the walk to the station. I'm glad to see you never speak when Marx is in the room, said Garvey presently. I'm sure it's better not. Don't you think so? He appeared to wait eagerly for the answer. Undoubtedly, said the puzzled secretary. Yes, the other went on quickly. He's an excellent man, but he has one drawback, a really horrid one. You may... But no, you could hardly have noticed it yet. Not drink, I trust, said Shorthouse, who would rather have discussed any other subject. Worse than that a great deal, Garvey replied, evidently expecting the other to draw him out. But Shorthouse was in no mood to hear anything horrible, and he declined to step into the trap. The best of servants have their faults, he said coldly. I'll tell you what it is if you like, Garvey went on still speaking very low and leaning forward over the table so that his face came close to the flame of the lamp. Only we must speak quietly in case he's listening. I'll tell you what it is, if you think you won't be frightened. Nothing frightens me, he laughed. Garvey must understand that at all events. Nothing can frighten me, he repeated. I'm glad of that, for it frightens me a good deal sometimes. Shorthouse feigned indifference, yet he was aware that his heart was beating a little quicker and that there was a sensation of chilliness in his back. He waited in silence for what was to come. He has a horrible predilection for vacuums, Garvey went on presently in a still lower voice and thrusting his face farther forward under the lamp. Vacuums, exclaimed the secretary in spite of himself. What in the world do you mean? What I say, of course. He's always tumbling into them so that I can't find him or get at him. He hides there for hours at a time, and for the life of me I can't make out what he does there. Shorthouse stared his companion straight in the eyes. What in the name of heaven was he talking about? Do you suppose he goes there for a change of air? Or, or to escape? He went on in a louder voice. Shorthouse could have laughed outright, but for the expression of the other's face. I should not think there was much air of any sort in a vacuum, he said quietly. That's exactly what I feel, continued Garvey with ever-growing excitement. That's the horrid part of it. How the devil does he live there? You see... Have you ever followed him there? interrupted the secretary. The other leaned back in his chair and drew a deep sigh. Never. It's impossible. You see, I can't follow him. There's not room for two. A vacuum only holds one comfortably. Marx knows that. He's out of my reach altogether once he's fairly inside. He knows the best side of a bargain. He's a regular Jew. That is a drawback to a servant, of course. Shorthouse spoke slowly with his eyes on his plate. A drawback, interrupted the other with an ugly chuckle. I call it a draw-in, that's what I call it. A draw-in does seem a more accurate term, assented Shorthouse. But, he went on, I thought that nature abhorred a vacuum. She used to when I was at school, though perhaps it's so long ago. He hesitated and looked up. Something in Garvey's face, something he had felt before he looked up, stopped his tongue and froze the words in his throat. 
His lips refused to move and became suddenly dry. Again the mist rose before his eyes and the appalling shadow dropped its veil over the face before him. Garvey's features began to burn and glow. Then they seemed to coarsen and somehow slip confusedly together. He stared for a second, it seemed only for a second, into the visage of a ferocious and abominable animal. And then, as suddenly as it had come, the filthy shadow of the beast passed off, the mist melted out, and with a mighty effort over his nerves, he forced himself to finish his sentence. You see, it's so long since I've given attention to such things, he stammered. His heart was beating rapidly, and a feeling of oppression was gathering over it. It's my peculiar and special study, on the other hand, Garvey resumed. I've not spent all these years in my laboratory to no purpose, I can assure you. Nature, I know for a fact, he added with unnatural warmth, does not abhor a vacuum. On the contrary, she's uncommonly fond of them, much too fond, it seems, for the comfort of my little household. If there were fewer vacuums and more abhorrence, we should get on better, a damned sight better, in my opinion. Your special knowledge, no doubt, enables you to speak with authority, Shorthouse said, curiosity and alarm warring with other mixed feelings in his mind. But how can a man tumble into a vacuum? You may well ask. That's just it. How can he? It's inconceivable, and I can't make it out at all. Marx knows, but he won't tell me. Jews know more than we do. For my part, I have reason to believe. He stopped and listened. Hush, here he comes, he added, rubbing his hands together as if in glee and fidgeting in his chair. Steps were heard coming down the passage, and as they approached the door, Garvey seemed to give himself completely over to an excitement he could not control. His eyes were fixed on the door, and he began clutching the tablecloth with both hands. Again his face was screened by the loathsome shadow. It grew wild, wolfish. As through a mask that concealed and yet was thin enough to let through a suggestion of the beast crouching behind, there leaped into his countenance the strange look of the animal in the human, the expression of the werewolf, the monster. The change in all its loathsomeness came rapidly over his features, which began to lose their outline. The nose flattened, dropping with broad nostrils over thick lips. The face rounded, filled, and became squat. The eyes which luckily for Shorthouse no longer sought his own, glowed with the light of untamed appetite and bestial greed. The hands left the cloth and grasped the edges of the plate and then clutched the cloth again. This is my course coming now, said Garvey in a deep guttural voice. He was shivering. His upper lip was partly lifted and showed the teeth, white and gleaming. A moment later the door opened and Marks hurried into the room and set a dish in front of his master. Garvey half rose to meet him, stretching out his hands and grinning horribly. With his mouth he made a sound like the snarl of an animal. The dish before him was steaming, but the slight vapor rising from it betrayed by its odor that it was not born of a fire of coals. It was the natural heat of flesh warmed by the fires of life only just expelled. The moment the dish rested on the table, Garvey pushed away his own plate and drew the other up close under his mouth. Then he seized the food in both hands and commenced to tear it with his teeth, grunting as he did so. Shorthouse closed his eyes with a feeling of nausea. When he looked up again, the lips and jaw of the man opposite were stained with crimson. 
the whole man was transformed, a feasting tiger, starved and ravenous, but without a tiger's grace. This was what he watched for several minutes, transfixed with horror and disgust. Marx had already taken his departure, knowing evidently what was not good for the eyes to look upon, and Shorthouse knew at last that he was sitting face to face with a madman. The ghastly meal was finished in an incredibly short time, and nothing was left but a tiny pool of red liquid, rapidly hardening. Garvey leaned back heavily in his chair and sighed. His smeared face, withdrawn now from the glare of the lamp, began to resume its normal appearance. Presently he looked up at his guest and said in his natural voice, I hope you've had enough to eat. You wouldn't care for this, you know, with a downward glance. Shorthouse met his eyes with an inward loathing, and it was impossible not to show some of the repugnance he felt. In the other's face, however, he thought he saw a subdued, cowed expression, but he found nothing to say. Marks will be in presently, Garvey went on. He's either listening or in a vacuum. Does he choose any particular time for his visits? The secretary managed to ask. He generally goes after dinner, just about this time, in fact. But he's not gone yet, he added, shrugging his shoulders, for I think I hear him coming. Shorthouse wondered whether vacuum was possibly synonymous with wine cellar, but gave no expression to his thoughts. With chills of horror still running up and down his back, he saw Marks come in with a basin and towel, while Garvey thrust up his face just as an animal puts up its muzzle to be rubbed. Now we'll have coffee in the library, if you're ready, he said in the tone of a gentleman addressing his guests after a dinner party. Shorthouse picked up the bag, which had lain all this time between his feet, and walked through the door his host held open for him. Side by side, they crossed the dark hall together, and to his disgust, Garvey linked an arm in his, and with his face so close to the secretary's ear that he felt the warm breath, said in a thick voice, "'You're uncommonly careful with that bag, Mr. Shorthouse.' It surely must contain something more than the bundle of papers. Nothing but the papers, he answered, feeling the hand burning upon his arm and wishing he were miles away from the house and its abominable occupants. Quite sure? asked the other with an odious and suggestive chuckle. Is there any meat in it? Fresh meat? Raw meat? The secretary felt somehow that at the least sign of fear, the beast on his arm would leap upon him and tear him with his teeth. Nothing of the sort, he answered vigorously. It wouldn't hold enough to feed a cat. True, said Garvey with a vile sigh, while the other felt the hand upon his arm twitch up and down as if feeling the flesh. True, it's too small to be of any real use. As you say, it wouldn't hold enough to feed a cat. Shorthouse was unable to suppress a cry. The muscles of his fingers, too, relaxed in spite of himself, and he let the black bag drop with a bang to the floor. Garvey instantly withdrew his arm and turned with a quick movement, but the secretary had regained his control as suddenly as he had lost it, and he met the maniac's eyes with a steady and aggressive glare. There, you see, it's quite light. It makes no appreciable noise when I drop it. He picked it up and let it fall again as if he had dropped it for the first time purposely. The ruse was successful. Yes, you're right, Garvey said, still standing in the doorway and staring at him. At any rate, it wouldn't hold enough for two, he laughed. And as he closed the door, the horrid laughter echoed in the empty hall.
They sat down by a blazing fire, and Shorthouse was glad to feel its warmth. Marx presently brought in coffee. A glass of the old whiskey and a good cigar helped to restore equilibrium. For some minutes, the men sat in silence, staring into the fire. Then, without looking up, Garvey said in a quiet voice, I suppose it was a shock to you to see me eat raw meat like that. I must apologize if it was unpleasant to you, but it's all I can eat, and it's the only meal I take in the twenty-four hours. Best nourishment in the world, no doubt, though I should think it might be a trifle strong for some stomachs. He tried to lead the conversation away from so unpleasant a subject, and went on to talk rapidly of the values of different foods, of vegetarianism and vegetarians, and of men who had gone for long periods without any food at all. Garvey listened apparently without interest and had nothing to say. At the first pause, he jumped in eagerly. When the hunger is really great on me, he said, still gazing into the fire, I simply cannot control myself. I must have raw meat, the first I can get. Here he raised his shining eyes and Shorthouse felt his hair beginning to rise. It comes upon me so suddenly, too. I never can tell when to expect it. A year ago, the passion rose in me like a whirlwind and Marx was out and I couldn't get meat. I had to get something or I should have bitten myself. Just when it was getting unbearable, my dog ran out from beneath the sofa. It was a spaniel. Shorthouse responded with an effort. He hardly knew what he was saying and his skin crawled as if a million ants were moving over it. There was a pause of several minutes. I've bitten marks all over, Garvey went on presently in his strange, quiet voice, and as if he were speaking of apples. But he's bitter. I doubt if the hunger could ever make me do it again. Probably that's what first drove him to take shelter in a vacuum. He chuckled hideously as he thought of this solution of his attendant's disappearances. Shorthouse seized the poker and poked the fire as if his life depended on it. But when the banging and clattering was over, Garvey continued his remarks with the same calmness. The next sentence, however, was never finished. The secretary had got upon his feet suddenly. I shall ask your permission to retire, he said in a determined voice. I'm tired tonight. Would you be good enough to show me to my room? Garvey looked up at him with a curious cringing expression, behind which there shone the gleam of cunning passion. Certainly, he said, rising from his chair. You've had a tiring journey. I ought to have thought of that before. He took the candle from the table and lit it, and the fingers that held the match trembled. We needn't trouble Marks, he explained. That beast's in his vacuum by this time. A quick history lesson, if I may, since you might be wondering WTF at the whole vacuum thing. Garvey is talking about actual vacuums, like space. Vacuum cleaners, as we know them, wouldn't come around until 1919. First invented in 1901, the vacuum cleaner was about the size and aesthetic of a small fire truck. About the size of a small U-Haul trailer, not the Gigundo fire trucks we've got now. The vacuum engine itself and the filter was in the truck, and you'd run the hose into the house through a door or window. So while the image of Marx hiding himself in the bag of a vacuum cleaner is weird, they're talking about actual voids in space, which I think might actually be weirder. 
Next week wraps up the strange adventures of a private secretary in New York. And yes, it does get weirder. We'll also visit with a couple other very strange people. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.